What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because relying on one source of income is a fragile way to live. Today, I'm joined by a Side Hustle Show listener who's now earning thousands of dollars a month from his online business. Stick around to hear how William Wadsworth has evolved his side hustle from doing one-on-one tutoring to now having multiple streams of income, including some of the more passive variety and getting paid up to $1,000 a day for his content and expertise. William runs examstudyexpert.com, where he writes and podcasts about memory psychology, learning science, and helping students study smarter. I connected with William through my SEO course, thetrafficcourse.com, where you can actually see his testimonial right up there on the landing page, and through the $1,000 100 Ways book project. Super inspiring story, lots of actionable advice in this one. A couple quick plugs before we get into it. First, if you don't have a website of your own yet, blogstartercourse.com. This is my free video course on how to get your own website up and running quickly and affordably. And if you do already have your site up and running, hit the show notes for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash William to download my free guide to three quick ways to optimize your website for more conversions. Again, that's at sidehustlenation.com slash William or through the link in the episode description of your podcast player app. Ready? Let's do it. So I'd always had this little bit of an entrepreneurial bug. And the other thing kind of in the back of my mind was I'd always had this thing about helping kids study smarter for their exams. So the tutoring was really just about kind of delivering the content, you know, helping them understand how to do certain calculations in physics or certain, you know, metabolic pathways in biology or whatever. It was about the content. But what had really always interested me was the kind of how of how to study, because I knew from my my own background in psychology, it's what I studied at university, that there are huge opportunities if you study in the right way to learn faster and remember more. And most kids and adults who study for exams don't understand the correct way to study. And, you know, that was my own journey. You know, I studied really hard through university and looking back with what I kind of learned in the psychology course, I realized I wasted huge amounts of time kind of not studying particularly effectively. Okay. So I'd kind of got these two drivers, like on the one hand, this like entrepreneurial bug <laughs> uh, and to, you know, to build my own dream, not build someone else's. Um, and on the other hand, this kind of itch to scratch to you know, help the world study smarter. And so it all kind of clicked into place when I started hearing these stories about people that had, you know, made successful businesses, you know, blogging, podcasting, coaching. I thought that sounds right up my street. I'd love to give it a go. Uh, and that was really the kind of genesis of, of what ultimately led to, to Exam Study Expert. I think a lot of people have this moment like you did. Well, you're, it's kind of funny that your boss is somewhat responsible yeah. for getting hooked <laughs> on podcasts, but like the uh, discovery of on demand audio on whatever you want to learn about is, you know, it was this crazy light bulb moment and it's, you know, made me kind of bummed to think about all the windshield time, all the commuting time that I had prior to discovering that. And, you know, this was back, you know, 2000. Seven, like, you know, in the very early days of podcasting, sure, there was some out there. But I think, I don't know the latest stats, but it's like, what, you know, half of the population has yet to discover that, has yet to have that moment. And so that's what one reason I'm still very excited about the future of podcasting. I think there's a lot of people still out there to, uh, to have that moment of discovery, be like, oh, this is so cool. I can tune into, you know, whatever I want on demand. Okay. So very cool. So you're doing the tutoring. You're thinking maybe there's a way to, combine this entrepreneurial spirit with some of the exam study expertise that you already have. And then, so what, what kind of first steps do you take after that? I think the very first thing I did was have a kind of a marathon weekend and I wrote a book in a weekend and got it out as a, as a KDP self-published book. Wow. Um, and what's the title of it? 
it uh, outsmarts your exams and it still sells really well to this day. I'm really proud of it. I've built on it a lot since that first transit weekend of writing. But like, it was quite nice to just do something. Um, there's this phrase I, I, I came across. If you're getting bored walking up the hill, try running up it. And I think Cal Newport, again, talks about this, this, this idea of a grand gesture. You, know, you, get, you block off a huge amount of time and you focus on it really intently and you make massive progress in a really short time. And that was really nice. It gave me a really nice sense of momentum. And I kind of put it out in the world and got a few friends to review it and got a few reviews. And then, you know, didn't get any sales at all because I didn't know much about marketing at the time. But that was a kind of nice little first project. The next thing was starting to to get the blog going. So towards the end of 2018, I started to publish my first tentative blog articles and uh, with a view to, to, to becoming a blogger. The problem I was having at the time with all this was that aside from carving out the odd grand weekend, it was really difficult to make substantial progress on becoming a blogger, podcaster, coach, speaker, along the side of quite a good demanding corporate job in, in strategy. You know, I love my job. It was, it was a good job. I, I wasn't kind of pushed out of a job by hating it, but it was a job that it's more than just a nine to five, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of headspace, a lot of hours. I was really struggling to find the time to, and the energy to, to kind of make meaningful progress on the exams to the expert bit alongside the corporate day job. So January 2019, I took the decision to swap the basically 100K corporate day job uh, salary for tutoring. And I wouldn't tutor for five days a week. I, my plan was to tutor for kind of two to three days a week and use that uh, income. It was going to be a bit of an income hit, but it's still enough to top things up in the meantime and, and use that as a kind of bridge, free up a bit of time during the week to really work on exams to the expert and the entrepreneurial vision. Um, so, so that's that's what I did uh, early 2019. Yeah, And you're able to do it because you're a student of the financial independence movement here, you know, you're living below your means. Yeah. And so you're like, well, I don't necessarily need this whole salary to cover my expenses. And, on, and I'm confident that, you know, I can, with the tutoring stuff that I already have, like, I'm confident at least I'm not going to go backwards. Right. And then I have these extra two, three days a week to focus on building up this new business. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? Absolutely spot on, yeah. And, and I guess the other things, the couple of factors were that, you know, again, as a student of the financial independence movement, I had a bit of a cash pile saved up, sort of 30k dollars, something of that order. And that felt like a little bit of a runway to give me a bit of breathing space, you know, even if the tutoring didn't quite make ends meet. And then as the ultimate backup, I thought if it all fell in a heap and nothing was working out a year or two in, I could always just go back and get another corporate role. I felt reasonably employable. I felt that even a year or even a couple of years out, doing all this entrepreneurial stuff, I was still going to be employable at the end of it. It was just the kind of, you know, in hindsight, it would become almost like a, an extended sabbatical. And I'd learn a whole load of new interesting skills and come back into the corporate world, all the kind of stronger and richer for it. Ultimately, that didn't need to happen, but that felt like the ultimate kind of safety net. That's good. And that's an important point to make too. It's like, okay, well, what's a realistic worst case scenario if it doesn't work out? I could kind of swallow my pride and dust off the resume and have to go look for another job. And that's not the end of the world. I think a lot of people, and really, you know, even myself included and my and certainly my wife, you know, it's like if I take this break, you know, this career break to pursue something and it doesn't work out, how am I going to explain this gap on my resume? You know, how am I going to explain this, you know, one year, two years, you know, mini retirement? 
to some future employer and it's like, well, you know, this person is lazy. They're not dedicated, but I, I don't know, especially right now with the super low unemployment numbers, like people are trying to find good people. Like, okay, we're willing to look past some things. So I think that's an important uh, illustration of, well, okay, realistically, what happens here? So appreciate you sharing that. So starting the blog, anything, <laughs> tell, tell me about like the initial traction. Like does Google start to discover you? How are you getting readers? Like what's, what's going on in those early months of the site? Man, those early months, you know, a reader shows up on a Tuesday and you go, yes, we got a reader today. <laughs> <laughs> it is really slow at first because I was, I was literally at ground zero. It's not like I'd been building on a website. I've been running for years and years by that point. I was also pretty much at ground zero in terms of my, my skills. I'd learned quite a bit through listening to Side Hustle Nation guests amongst other places. So I knew a little bit about the basics of kind of keyword research and where to target my, my keywords. So yeah, I wasn't a total basket case, but I still had a lot to learn. I tried loads of things that they kind of recommend for that at those early days. You know, I, did lots, I tried social media, I tried, you know, outreach, asking friends, guest posting. The thing that actually worked more than anything was, was Reddit for me. And I think shout out to Brian Switchco from a relatively early site or some episode for, yeah. for some pretty actionable oh, yeah, tips. Yeah, that's, that's a throwback yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that worked pretty well for me. And, you know, I'd probably share something on Reddit maybe once every two or three weeks. So it wasn't super regular, but I'd try and go really well targeted with my group and the, 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 Reddit sub, the subreddit that I chose, you know, spend a lot of time engaging with the community. So there's a lot of work to get ready to post this thing. And then when it did well, I might get two or 300 visitors out of it. And if I did that a couple of times in the month, that would be my kind of 500 visitors for the month. The other thing I was doing at the same time was starting to build up a domain authority. So I did help a reporter out for a while. I was fairly consistent on that. That's just a way you can uh, answer reporters' requests for quotes and information. And a lot of times they'll link back to your to your site uh, as part okay. of the, the, the credit. So, you know, again, I got a few uh, high authority backlinks through that, which I think ultimately helped to get the Google search traffic kicking in uh, a few months down the line. Yeah, trying to build up just like, so it's not, you're not operating in a vacuum, right? You need, and sometimes even just a handful of links from other sites that have been established for a while to say, okay, this is somebody uh, worth, worth ranking or at least paying attention to if they put out some good content. I want to go back to the Reddit thing. So do you have an example of what type of content you would post there, like a straight link to your site or like, you know, here's 10 tips to study better. If you want to learn more, go check out this resort. Like what can you give a sense of what type of content did well over there? Sure. One of the early ones was I did it on the subreddit. I think it was the subreddit study motivation or, or something like that. So it was all about people wanting study motivation. So I'd written an article all about study motivation. And I'd basically spent three days solid writing this article. I did it kind of the first week I, after I quit my, my corporate job. So an inordinate amount of time, really, for a blogger to spend on an article. I'd notes don't spend anywhere near three days on my articles <laughs> these days. But I did, I, you know, I did it. I really kind of went to town on it. And then I sort of shared on, on Reddit, I, sh I shared kind of an infographic from it, sort of summarizing some of the key insights, plus some text, again, kind of highlighting some of the key insights, and then with a link to the article to, to go and learn more. And so I think the combination of the infographic, which was quite, like, it's quite insightful. I'd, I'd got kind of a, perhaps a different, a nice way of framing it, a nice sort of perspective on the kind of study motivation issue. That got some nice upvotes. And then for people that had read, interested enough to read the tips, 
that I'd shared, they were probably then interested enough to click the link and go and read the rest of the article. That was one early example. But, you know, again, and I think Brian's advice was about that, you know, don't just turn up in a subreddit and post that without anybody knowing you uh, or without having a, a kind of a feel for the group and what the kind of community is all about, the sorts of things they worry about. You know, I'd spent maybe an hour even for, you know, a good few days leading up to posting that just in the subreddit, engaging with people, commenting on stuff, uh, just getting a real feel for what makes the group tick. And then I went and posted my thing. <laughs> Seems like an incredible amount of work in hindsight for, you know, 300 visitors. But that's kind of what I felt I had to do in those those early days. Um, just to get those, that kind of flywheel just creaking around inch by inch. Um, it is. It's so much harder to go from zero to one than it is to go from one to 10. Like trying to get a rocket off the ground takes a lot of rocket fuel. And sometimes that's a lot of hand-to-hand guerrilla marketing stuff just like this. So I appreciate you sharing that. On the keyword research front, so it sounds like you're going about this a little more intentionally than I did with my first uh, (laughs) attempt at blogging. It was like, oh, you know, here's some pictures from our vacations. People will pay attention to me just because I'm an interesting person. Like saying, well, if I'm going to spend sometimes days creating this content, I want to make sure it's something that people are looking for. You mind sharing what the research process either looked like or maybe how that's evolved and what it looks like today? Yeah, absolutely. I've used keywords everywhere like a lot in the beginning. I think it was free when I started and now it's virtually free. I think it's sort of 10 bucks a year for all the credits you could want. And I was basically looking out for search terms that were obviously relevant to the sorts of things I wanted to write about, how to study well, had reasonably high search volume and were relatively low competition. Keywords everywhere gives you a rough and ready sort of competition metric. Was there a minimum search volume that you're looking to target? As a kind of rough rule of thumb, I was tended to go for things that were kind of into the four figures in terms of monthly search volume. So one or 2,000 searches per month for the, for the kind of primary keyword. I think you know, some of the early ones I went for were kind of even more than that, like 30,000 in some cases. And I wasn't so worried about competition. And as a result, some of those early articles didn't, didn't rank so well. And as the time's gone by, I've become much more willing to write on slightly lower volume primary keywords, particularly when there's a kind of a cluster of related keywords. So I might be able to hit, you know, even as one primary keyword that's sort of at 500 to 1,000 searches per month. You know, if there's then like 10 other keywords that are kind of pretty similar, you know, that adds up to, you know, quite a lot of, quite a decent volume that I'm hitting with, with one article that kind of goes for that cluster of, of keywords. And that's something that like uh, Hrefs and Rank IQ will tell you more than just the search volume. They'll kind of give you an estimate of the traffic potential. Like if you do end up ranking on the first page, you know, with all the different variations of this, you know, what is the, you know, monthly or yearly impact likely to be on your traffic bottom line? I think that's in some ways more helpful than saying a thousand people search for this yeah. a month. I mean, if you can, it's all you know trying to compare apples to apples. But appreciate you sharing that. Curious to get your take on this. So, as an early blogger trying to establish you know some domain authority and you know let Google know what your site is all about, do you almost have to write these articles on the topics that are more competitive, even though you kind of know? You don't really have a realistic chance of ranking for this in the near term. But if you want your site to be about studying better, you know, and studying smarter, you kind of have to tackle those topics just to to show the search engines that, yeah, this is what we talk about. 
That's an interesting question. I've never really thought about it much. Maybe. Over the years, I've done a mixture of two things. I've done going after the that sort of sweet spot of low competition, high volume, with an intention of getting the search traffic. But then I've also carved out some time to make sure I write about things that I just really want to write about because it's something I think I've got a really good take on or perhaps a unique take on. I either want to point potential clients to it or I just want to have it on the site because I think it's a really important thing that I've got a view on, that I've got some good content on that I want to share. And then so I'll, I'll, sort of like, I'll, I'll obviously have some keywords against it, but that'll be a case of, you know, I'm definitely writing on this thing and then I'll go away and find what looked like the most relevant keywords to, to kind of map it to. So I, I've done a bit of both of those things, I think. And perhaps that, combination has helped google realize what what the site's about uh over time yeah it's kind of funny i it took i don't know why it took me so long to realize this but you know a lot of my best performing posts have come from exactly what you said kind of your own curiosity your own like these these were topics that you wanted to cover and then trying to massage that title to such a point well you know if I if I'm going to create this anyway, it's like well, I might as well get some search volume from it or search traffic from it. So, what might people be looking for as an answer to this question? And then some of the perennial best performing posts really fall under that category for me, rather than starting with you know some keyword research first and then oh, it says I should write about this. Okay, let's go fill in the blank or create an outline for that. So, I think that's a, a curious one. What's the new content publishing? schedule look like today? Are you like, oh, every Monday there's got to be a post? Or just curious what the production timeline looks like? I'm less and less hands-on with blog content uh, now because I, I outsource a lot of it to a writer who I've been working with for about 12, 12 months now. She does about three days a week for the blog. And she'll do a mixture of sort of researching topics from scratch herself and you know pretty much writing an article from scratch, given a Topic and a keyword, through to uh, let's say I've 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 written a, a a sort of a script for a solo podcast episode, and I'll give that to her and say you know sort of turn this into a blog article and you know tweak it and add a couple of pictures. So, so she'll kind of do do that full range of of article types. We don't have a strict schedule actually. We pretty much put articles up when we're ready. Some weeks we might come out with two or three articles and then sometimes weeks will go by and we won't have anything new. We're pretty lazy as bloggers <laughs> in the sense that we write the articles and we do a really good job of writing the articles and then that's it. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we often don't even promote it to our own email list, which we probably should do. Um, but we certainly don't do any putting it around social media. Um, maybe we should do that too. Um, but kind of what I found over the years was that you know, I'd be running, I'd be kind of chasing my tail, putting stuff on the mailing list, putting stuff off on Twitter, trying to find the hashtags, trying to find Facebook groups to post it in, you know, all this effort and energy. And actually, if I took all that time and just put it into writing another article that Google would pick up and rank really well, for us, that just seemed to work much better. We go for quality. I'm really proud of the quality of, of all the things we've, we've written on the blog. There's often a unique take there through kind of my background in psychology, through all the you know, coaching I've done. Like, I, I tend to have a unique take on most of the things we write about, over and above a lot of the kind of articles that that populate the first couple of pages. And or we'll do something nice in terms of analysing sort of a data set that no one's found before, or publishing some nice kind of charts or infographics, or, or just something that kind of makes it really, really stand out. And when we do that, we find that we we kind of rank fine, and and we don't, you know, 
we might you know, some of our best performing articles get hundreds, even thousands of of clicks from Google a day, and the effort of kind of going around and posting stuff on social or whatever, or doing Pinterest, you know, just the effort is sort of has disproportionately tiny results <laughs> uh, for us. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And I think that's important to know. And maybe it was different early on where you, you have to go out into the world and tell people about it. But now, especially for the types of content that you're creating, at least it sounds like, you know, this is on social, it's kind of interruption marketing. Like we're trying to break into people's feed with something that may or may not be relevant to them at that exact time versus Google, you know, it's relevant because they're searching for that exact topic. So I'm, I'm totally with you there. And, and if you look at any of my social media, you will see that I practice pretty much the same thing where I'm not not doing a great job of promoting the existing content. You did mention the podcast. I want to touch on that and how that plays into the whole ecosystem and the business. And we'll get into all the different monetization streams too. But can you speak to the podcast for, for a bit? Is this you behind the mic? Is this an interview show? What are you talking about on there? Yeah. So uh, the exam study expert podcast was started in about three months or so after the blog got going in earnest. So early 2019, as we did our first episode. And it's a mixture of solo episodes and interview episodes. I did half and half for a while. These days, it's a little bit more solo than guests. 
the guests tend to be sometimes scientists, so kind of the researchers that figure out all this stuff about learning and memory that I like to, to base my, my teachings on. Uh, so I get quite okay. a few scientists on, but kind of more holistically as well. Like sometimes we, we feature, you know, experts in kind of focus or concentration, or, you know, we had a meditation expert on. Like the very first episode was one of the most popular of all time. That was someone that was a kind of mindset coach. And she was great on, on kind of some of the, you know, mindset things that we might wrestle with as, as students. And that, that was really nice. So for a long time, I kind of just did it all myself, recorded the episodes, edited the episodes. Again, more recently, I've been outsourcing the editing uh, to an editor, uh, which has been great for allowing me to kind of keep podcasting, even though things are getting a bit busier. I've slightly dropped back from a weekly, uh, regular weekly publishing schedule, which I did for a very long time. But what I find is that the existing content is very evergreen. Every month, we still get hundreds of listens to some of the feature episodes from the archives. And it still, I think, still gets discovered organically within podcast en- uh, podcast search engines. So I still talk to some of my new coaching clients that say, you know, a podcast popped up in Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever uh, when I was looking for this or when I was listening to that. And some of the episodes that, that pop up there came out a year or two years, three years ago. That's, that's what's cool about it. It's like some of this, this stuff just, you know, it lives on the internet forever as long as you keep paying your hosting bill. So people can go back and binge on these archives and I'll get people who will say the same thing. Like, oh, I'm, I'm working my way through these 500 episodes. Like, whew, that's dedication, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you do anything specific to market the show or did, I guess, did it rely on kind of the existing traffic that you had and kind of follow in lockstep with the search traffic? Curious. Yeah. Um, about that i did do a couple of massive promotional blitzes at various points in the podcast history so a few months in i pulled all my promotional resources and just poured everything into promoting this thing basically on one day so i found all the relevant groups on facebook i posted in all the relevant subreddits i got my friends to share it i got guests to share it um I, I literally did. I wrote to the ma- mailing list. I literally did everything I could. Spent you know a week lining up all my ducks, and then boom, did it all in in one day, with a view to to trying to get it up the up the ranking charts. Uh, and it, and that worked quite well, and definitely led to a a notable bump in in listens uh, for for that month, which you know persisted. And I think I think that might have helped again that kind of organic discoverability kind of kick in and we've kind of been benefiting from that organic discoverability since. Okay. What's a typical call to action for you either at the end of a blog post or at a podcast episode? There's two or three main ones. Uh, I'll invite people to join the mailing list, so go and download my signature lead magnet study smarter cheat sheet uh, and and get them on the mailing list. There's inquire about coaching. So I get a lot of coaching clients through the podcast in particular. Um, and uh, that's, that's often a call to action at the end of, end of a show. Uh, inquire, about, inquire about coaching. And the other one would be uh, books. So I've got a couple of books. I mentioned the, the, the one I wrote in a weekend, Outsmart Your Exams. And I've also got Outsmart Your Studies. So if you're interested in, in reading more in a, perhaps an alternate format that's a bit more convenient to dip into, in a podcast, then uh, you know the books are available as well. So those those would be the three main ones. Okay, so I'm prioritizing the uh, the email, like we're going to nurture these leads over the long term. Inquire about coaching if you're ready to go right now. Come on in, and the in the books if you want to learn in a different format. Here you go, and here we go in depth over there. So I appreciate sharing that. Uh, and the study smarter cheat sheet is the is the primary lead magnet. 
Yeah, that's that's right. And w- one other thing, perhaps worth mentioning, I find that because I've got quite a global listener base, there's a lot of students all around the world that are interested in how to study smart. My pricing for coaching is is well aligned with sort of rich Western markets and tends not to work very well for for, for other markets, Africa. Asia. Um, I have an awful lot of listeners in India. India is a big English speaking market that really, really cares about exam success. Um, and you know, the, the, the kind of rates for one on one coaching don't work so well, but the rates for a book might work a little better. So, you know, one of the things I try and do is, is, you know, offer a, offer something for everybody. Um, no matter, no matter where you are. That makes sense. There's some level of price, um, you know, having a, an offered ladder, so to speak, where, you know, here's the, the low entry point or here's the, you know, sometimes it's the the do-it-yourself version of whatever you're offering. And here's the, yeah. you know, done done with you, you know, the coaching. And then and then maybe there's the done for you at the very top. Like, I don't know if that probably doesn't work in this niche. I can't take your test for you. But uh, <laughs> you know, that's how that's an offered ladder that you would see in in some niches. So I think that's kind of a, a smart way to structure it. But let's transition into those different revenue streams. So we've got the coaching staff, we've got the books, we've got I assume advertising and affiliate stuff through the site. What's uh, what's ringing the cash register for you? Yeah, exactly. So I, I tend to think of it as, as three big pillars. The first is the one-on-one coaching. As I say, clients find me through the podcast and also through Google search and those two channels equally. The second one is speaking in schools. So I go to high schools in the UK and run workshops for students and also for teachers uh, on on the science of how to study smarter. And clients for that predominantly find me through Google search these days. And then the third big pillar is, is kind of the passive income stuff. The biggest element of that is advertising on the blog. Uh, so I'm part of the Mediavine ad network, which yeah, I can't say enough good things about. They've, they've been fantastic to work with over the last sort of 12 months or so that I've been with them. And I've been making quite a bit of money. What's well, quite a bit? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say approaching two thousand dollars a month now, and uh, you know I'm choosing to reinvest most of that back into writing. You know the blog writer I mentioned to make sure that this time next year that figure will be even higher and will keep growing. The other little bits of passive income, so book royalties, that brings in. Um, sort of in the region of two to three hundred dollars a month, and a tiny little bit of, of Amazon affiliate income, maybe twenty dollars a month from recommending other people's books um, and and a couple of other products on the site. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got the coaching page pulled up here, and I see pricing between one hundred and twenty and two hundred dollars an hour, or you know, in the ninety to one hundred fifty pound per hour range. So it's a pretty strong hourly rate. Can you give a sense of the you know, hours per week or something you're dedicating to coaching clients? The amount of time I give to coaching tends to depend on what else I've got on uh, in a given month. So, you know, if I'm doing, um, I still get involved in some some research. Um, so if I've got a research project ongoing, I might have a bit less time for coaching. And um, the speaking I mentioned, that kind of second pillar, um, you know, it's the, the kind of speaking engagements take up quite a bit of time if I've got if it's a busy time of year for those those for reference tend to be about a thousand dollars a day is, is a kind of typical rate uh, for for those engagements do you find those are local or are you doing those remote all over the world so the coaching clients definitely remote and all over the world I have clients in America Australia Japan uh, the Bahamas uh, as, as well as the UK and and around Europe as well the speaking is definitely UK focused I normally travel to schools I do a few 
speaking engagements remotely. I will do a few, particularly post-pandemic, um, over over Zoom or whatever uh, as a okay. webinar. But by and large, they want me to turn up. I think that sort of business line does does rely a little bit on reputation and perhaps familiarity with the kind of local exam system to do a really good job of that. So I might, even if I've got US clients saying, you know, talk to this, talk to our students remotely, I could see that working. It's just, it's just not, not happened so much. Um, I think local market reputation counts for a lot in, in that, that line of work. Are those schools and, uh, and other people hiring you for these, you know, a thousand bucks a day speaking gigs are, they coming to you? Are you going out proactively pitching like, hey, you know, I'm William, I can come in and give this presentation on topic XYZ? It's a bit like the blog and the podcast, you know, in the early days, it takes a bit of outreach and a bit of effort to get the word out there. I can talk about how I did that in it if, if you'd like. But, um, you know, these days, they mainly come to me. So they find they find the site through through Google search, or they've been referred by another school that liked my work and um, you know wanted to recommend me. Or, you know, I'm even starting to get this, this sort of local, uh, sort of regional funding networks that have money available to schools to fund this sort of thing. So I'm, I'm kind of starting to become, you know, listed on preferred supplier lists for those sorts of things, which is, which is really nice. And then I make sure I write to old clients at the end of the year and say, you know, what, what are our plans for next year? Um, and make sure those, those uh, plans get, get made with existing clients. Um, it's the beauty of speaking to schools. Like they're always cycling new kids through. So Absolutely. Come on in. Yeah. it's a new, it's a new audience every time. It, it's a really nice, yeah. You know, if they like your work, they bring you back year after year. And what I find is that the schools I've been with longest, I do the most work with. So what might've started off with just a one-off, oh, you know, come in and do this one-off talk for an hour or two, um, you know, might grow to, you know, several, several thousands uh, per year and doing several days of work for several different year groups, several different ages of students, and maybe talking to their parents as well. So it tends to, once you've got that foot in the door, I'm finding that, you know, there tend to be opportunity to to deepen that relationship and, and do more to help each other out. Are you still doing any of the original side hustle tutoring or is that kind of under that coaching bucket or coaching umbrella? I'm pleased to say I've almost entirely been able to to say goodbye to that. Um Look, I, I mean, I enjoyed it at the time, but it's nowhere near as fun as doing the exam success coaching stuff that I, I really love to do. And it's also a, a much worse hourly rate because it tends to be you know, work through agencies. They take their cuts. I also have to do a bit more prep because you know, I have to kind of make sure I've got my head around the, the specific content I'm teaching that day. Okay, okay. So yeah, it's a, it was always a long-term goal to basically say goodbye to that line of work as soon as I could and as soon as the finances from Exam Study Expert were, were strong enough. That point came maybe about a year or so ago. When you were getting started, were, were there other people doing this? I'm thinking back to when I was in school, there were like study guide books, like you could go take the practice tests for the SAT or whatever. And there were tutors, but I don't know if anybody had branded themselves as the exam study expert to go and help you, you know, pass this specific test. Is this an, was this a niche or is this a niche that you've kind of created? A little bit of both. I, I think in large part, I have created it for, for myself. So the, the, the sort of study coaching bit, a lot of people don't know that's a service that exists. And that's part of my challenge when I'm trying to find new clients. You know, it's not like I'm, 
it's not like I'm a plumber, you know, find a plumber near me, right, right. fix a broken tap. Not a lot of people know that they need to find a study coach. So yeah, that's definitely a challenge and kind of explaining and articulating what I do and the value of what I do is definitely something I've had to work on over the years. And I wasn't perhaps great at it to start with, and I've got a lot better at it over time. It's one of the reasons that sales page for coaching that, that you mentioned you were looking at is so long, uh, sort of explains what I do. And I think it needs that explanation to, to really understand it if you're kind of new to the idea. And there were a couple of others I found in the early days who were doing sort of similar things. There are a couple of others in the UK, sort of along similar lines. Um, they didn't have my background in psychology, so I wasn't quite so impressed with their content. They were trying to solve a similar problem, but I think their tool set was less good than mine. And I think one of them has since kind of fallen by the wayside. The other is uh, still is still going, but on a slightly different kind of tangent to me, like her business model is a lot about kind of almost runs a little agency for kind of academic coaches. So it does this kind of study coaching thing, but has a little agency with kind of a handful of coaches that kind of coach for her. Um, oh, okay. One of the toughest parts about starting and growing your business is figuring out how to build relationships. As you know, people are more likely to buy from and do business with people they know, like, and trust. But when it comes to networking, where do you start? And what if you're more introverted like me? What if you're more wallflower than social butterfly? Well, there's a recent episode of a great podcast called This is Small Business that walks you through how to figure this stuff out. The episode is called How Networking Can Help You Build and Grow Your Business and Inside You'll learn practical tips on how to build business relationships that don't feel so transactional. A couple parts I liked in particular were how to break into those uh, tight little circles at networking events where you're kind of standing around awkwardly on the outside, and then what you should say in a follow-up email to somebody that you meet there. This is Small Business answers a ton of these questions that all entrepreneurs have, like how to use social media to grow your business, how to find your ideal price point, how to know when you're ready to launch your product, and tons more. So give it a follow. This is Small Business, an original podcast from Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. That means whether you're just starting out or your side hustle is already growing like crazy, Squarespace takes all things website-related and makes them easy. I want to highlight a few Squarespace features for you. One I knew about and a couple I didn't. First off, where Squarespace really shines is this huge library of professional website templates. That means you're not starting from scratch because they've got designs for every category and use case that you can customize to fit your unique needs so your business stands out online. That was the thing I knew about. Second one was new to me, and that's their online store functionality. Whether you're selling physical or digital products or a service, Squarespace has got the tools you need to start selling online. And third is their email campaigns. They make it easy to collect email subscribers from your site and drive engagement and sales through Squarespace email campaigns, and you can track the results of every send with built-in analytics. So head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash side hustle to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash side hustle. Do you see yourself pursuing that kind of agency model where you could bring in trusted experts underneath you, people that you've trained to kind of remove yourself from some of those hours for pounds or hours for dollars coaching time? So 
That's definitely one option I'd thought of in terms of future projects. There were um, among many others, right? <laughs> so about sort of six or so months ago, I got to a point where the existing streams of revenue from coaching, speaking, and the blog were feeling mature enough that I was starting to think, right, well, okay, what's next? What's the future direction going to be? And absolutely, that idea of agency model, get other people in to, to do it for me, was definitely an option on the table. I had loads of others though. Uh, you know, what if I doubled down on the blog and devoted a whole lot more time to writing articles again? What if I doubled down on the podcast and really kind of monstered that? What if I wrote some more books? What if I started a YouTube channel? What if I did like uh, study retreats and organized events? What if I did, uh, you know, I, I, Nick, I had a lot of ideas, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, that's like you said, you're a, a serial side hustler here. <laughs> um, so to kind of try and whittle it down and decide what I was going to do next, I really liked uh, another former guest's idea. So Rosemary Groner talks about uh, kind of ROI calculations. I did a slightly different variance on her ROI calculations to kind of evaluate this long list of, of possible projects. And basically, my, my thought process was I can earn a livable income now in about half a week, so about two and a half days a week to do the speaking, coaching, and the blog's almost hands off now. So I've kind of got this other chunk of the week, this other two and a half days a week, in which I want to take on projects that are both going to be fun and profitable in the long term. So to help decide which projects I was going to prioritize, I basically looked at two things. I looked at how much time per week would that project take up? Is it like a half day a week thing? Is it like two days a week? And then also what's the kind of run rate revenue that that project might eventually build towards, say within about 18 months? And then I basically divided one by the other. So I came up with monthly recurring revenue per days per week on the project as my kind of okay. ROI metric. And, and that was just the metric that made the most sense to me as a kind of freelance entrepreneur. And the project that by far came out top on that process, and also to be honest, ranked the highest for how excited I was and how fun it looked to work on, was an idea I'd had for ages, which is a tech project actually. So, you know, the agency idea was was in there, but it didn't make the cut. So yeah, for about the last six months or so, I've been putting about half my time going pretty hard on this new tech venture. I partnered with a a tech co-founder and we've set it up as a sort of slightly separate venture. We're, we're in it together, 50-50. He's built a working prototype and we're in schools now testing it out. So we're in a handful of trial schools who have actually got it out to real teachers, real students, and they're trying it out. Uh, it's an app called Memlock and it's sort of the next generation of learning and memory consolidation apps. Um, so it helps students remember what they've learned in their lessons each day. We're in a handful of schools already who are just sort of trialing out essentially like an alpha trial with with our sort of minimum, minimum viable product. And it seems to be going really, really well. <laughs> and it's sort of still slightly pinching ourselves going, you know, when are the wheels going to fall off this grand idea? You know, when's it going to start to uh, sort of fall apart a little bit? But um, it seems to be so far going, going really, really well. And, uh, you know, we're excited to take it to the next level build out the feature set to realize the potential that we think it's got um, and then you know start to offer it. We've got it for just one subject at the moment uh, that the kind of content within it you know open it up to all sorts of other subjects as well. The idea being that it's um, you know a really widely used tool in schools up and down the country and potentially beyond the country beyond the UK to kind of help students and, and teachers prepare for their exams. Oh very cool. We'll be on the lookout for that. That's an exciting new pivot and maybe an illustration that you know opportunities become visible once you're in motion are you planning to do you know 
enterprise sales, you know, we'll charge this price per, you know, however many students, uh, you know, out of school, curious on that side of things to recoup the development costs and and then some. Absolutely. You've hit the commercial model on the head there, Nick. So pounds per student per year charged to the school. Um, so they'll buy it. We envisage they'll kind of subscribe by department. So the biology department will subscribe to the biology module, physics department will subscribe to the physics module. And, uh, you know, we might give a discount at sort of school level if multiple departments are taking it. Um, we don't quite know. We don't quite know what price it'll be yet. So kind of you're in the f- like free, free beta testing phase now. I wouldn't even call it beta, definitely alpha. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So we're, uh, it, cause it's, and it's such an early stage product as well. So the schools we've been trialing with have had to put up with a few teething issues, a few tech issues that we've had to iron out. So they've been really, really supportive as the product matures and as they continue to use it over the coming weeks and we get more and more data on engagement and usage and, and benefit, then I want to go back and, you know, look them in the whites of the eyes and say, look, you know, here are some of our plans around pricing. Uh, does this look realistic? What do you think? And then uh, go to market on the back of that. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. I know selling into any sort of bureaucracy can be difficult to find. Well, who who are the decision makers, especially if it's a publicly funded institution? So I, I wish you luck with that because it sounds like a cool product. And I know students will get some benefit from that. As it relates to the blog, the podcast, are there any you know, key metrics that you're paying attention to that, you know, either you have on a certain, uh, you know, performance dashboard or something that you try and keep tabs on on a monthly basis? I'm a real sucker for looking at my stats, Nick. I, I don't know whether this is a healthy thing, but every <laughs> every day, sometime in the morning, I do the rounds and I check my, um, I check in on my Google Analytics and see what my daily page views were yesterday. I check in on Buzzsprout and I see how many listens the podcast had yesterday. I check in on Medivine and see how much ad revenue the blog earned yesterday. I check my KDP, see how many books I sold yesterday. And part of it is just a little bit of a dopamine hit. (laughs) I'll be honest. If, Um, If the numbers are good, yeah, for sure. Right, right, right. But sometimes it does throw up actionable insight. And so I'll note, for example, I'll look at either the, the page views against specific pages on the blog or the, the earnings against specific pages on the blog. And I might notice that a particular page has suddenly started to do really, really well and has really come through. That might act as a prompt to go back and look at that page, perhaps re-optimize it for the keywords it's ranking for, make sure it's in as best shape it could be. On the other hand, I might see an article that's been historically doing really well starting to slip down. And so that might prompt me to, to go in and have a look and see what see what's going wrong with that, see if there's anything I can do to, to get it back up the rankings and recover from some of its, its lost volume. Yeah, I kind of do the same thing, you know, comparing these 30 days or even these 90 days with the previous 30 or 90 days to say, what what lost traffic, what lost ranking? And I use that as a as a to-do list for what what content, which content to go through and refresh and update, make sure it's up to date, make sure it's still relevant and, you know, push that back to the top of the feed and hopefully, you know, bump it up, you know, a couple of ranks. Because even, you know, from the bottom of page one to the middle of page one, from the middle of page one to the top of page one, like it's all huge incremental gains in traffic for not a ton of work. And so I imagine for somebody with the volume of content that you have, the ROI is likely better to refresh and update something that you already have that maybe has slipped versus creating something completely from scratch. And in this case, paying a writer to do it. And, you know, maybe two, three months from now, it starts to gain a little bit of traction. Yeah. I think for us, it's still definitely a a mixture of both. There are some great 
low-hanging fruit in terms of new things to write about. But then we also definitely want to make sure that we are um, making the most of things we've got already. So definitely riding both horses for now. If you had to start over, anything that you'd do differently? Given how, in many ways, wide-eyed and naive I was on day one, you know, January 2019, when I just quit that corporate job, I was thinking, well, should I, should I have spent more time trying to build this up on the side of the corporate job, get a bit more stability, get a bit more knowledge and skill under my belt before I went kind of all in and, 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 you know, use the tutoring to kind of tide me over. I think in hindsight, no, I think, I think I'm glad I did it the way I did it. I think if I had done it the kind of inverted commas traditional side hustle route the whole way, in other words, done the whole thing on the side of a corporate job, I think given my, where my skill set was at, it would have taken me maybe 10 and, and the amount of time and energy I had each week to work on it. I think it might've taken like 10 years or something ridiculous to kind of get to the mm. point I am now, um, or even the point I was a year ago. And I think that for me would have just been too long. And I think I would have got bored and lost the will with it. I think giving myself that really focused runway to just get in and kind of make a load of mistakes and learn a load of stuff in really short time, relatively speaking, was the kind of opportunity I needed to to kickstart this thing and and make it all work. So yeah, I th- I think I'd do the same thing. I think I've just given myself two tips. It was like the two biggest things I learned in year one and two, respectively, were SEO and writing sales copy. If I'd been a little bit more focused on the importance of both of those things from the beginning, I might have been a bit more targeted in how I'd grown. So particularly year one, you know, getting like I, I knew SEO was important, but learning even more than I did even sooner and spending even more time practicing it. And then sales copy, that's what drives the, the coaching business, the speaking in schools business. Yeah, again, I wish I'd learned that, spent more time learning that sooner. I think those would be my two two little tips, SEO and sales copy. Get those learned sooner because they've been so important as foundation skills for for everything I do, really. Yes, absolutely. Those two, are pretty much any business that you're in these days, those two things are, are definitely not going to hurt you. So, William, I appreciate you sharing that. ExamStudyExpert.com is where you can find him. Check out the blog. Check out the Exam Study Expert podcast. We'll, of course, link up his books as well in the show notes for this episode. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Sell your value before you create it. And I need to give credit for this one to Alan Donegan uh, from the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. Also an alumnus of the Side Hustle Nation podcast, if I, if I remember rightly. What Alan means by this, and it's just been such an influential thing for me, is don't so much as write the slides for your presentation, don't write the words for your book, don't write the software you're going to sell, don't do any of that work on your product until you've sat down with a customer and said, look, this is what I'm planning to build, this is what I'm planning to sell you, do you want it? Sign an order form. <laughs> and I think this applies to, I, I really struggle to think of examples where you can't do this in some form or other. So I don't write any of my school presentations until I've sold the speaking gig to the school. For Memlock, we didn't start writing code until we talked to at least some schools and got kind of expression of interest being part of the, the alpha trial. Even for my latest book, I, I didn't actually write that. I'd wrote a little bit of it, but I didn't write uh, spend the majority of the work writing it until I'd pre-sold it through KDP um, and, and got some pre-orders in. It's just been such a powerful philosophy. It makes sure that you not only avoid wasting your time and energy on things that customers won't buy, but it also makes sure that the, cu- the product you eventually bring to market 
is the thing that customers want. Because as part of that pre-sale process, you may inevitably find things out about, you know, well, actually, the customer wants it slightly differently or even totally differently. And then you go away and build that slightly different or totally different thing. And it's what the market actually wants rather than what you think the market wants. So yeah, like a lot of people know it, but talking to entrepreneurs around me, a lot of people kind of intellectually think that this is a good idea. But when the rubber hits the road, they don't actually do it. <laughs> and it and it really, really pains me. So that would be absolutely my number one tip. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Some sort of pre-validation before you go back into the workshop and toil away, building something that there may not be any proven demand for. Uh, I've, I've definitely been guilty of that and have tried to shift in recent years to this pre-sales model with credit to yourself, credit to Alan. So I, I like that one. So go sell your value before you create it. Make sure there's customers on the other side of this thing. So William, once again, examstudyexpert.com. Thanks so much for joining me and we'll catch up soon. Thanks so much, Nick. All right. Hope you enjoyed that chat with William. I think there was a ton of wisdom packed into this one. And I'm just going to run through a few of the moments that stood out to me. The first was this idea of living below your means and the freedom and flexibility that affords. William, took a much more aggressive approach to his side hustle than I would typically recommend deciding to quit his job when all he really had to fall back on was a bit of a savings cushion and some side income from his tutoring business. But what's interesting is a couple things. First, his uh, analysis of the of the realistic worst case scenario. You know what? If it doesn't work out, I will have learned a bunch of new stuff and then I could still go get another corporate job. Trying something entrepreneurial doesn't necessarily mean you're never going to be employable again. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the speed of execution that that extra time from not having a day job afforded him. And I thought it was really interesting how he mentioned it would have been this major struggle to come up with the energy and excitement to work on exam study expert in his after work hours and would have been much slower to see results and might never have gotten there. You know, to do what he did in two to three years might have taken 10 had he just been doing it part time. Now, not that I'm recommending you go jump off the deep end and quit your job today, but I took this as an argument for taking calculated risks and making those types of evaluations. Takeaway number two is if you're bored walking up the hill, try running up it. My typical school of thought is slow and steady, incremental progress, you know, chip away at these goals. I think William would agree with that process, but would throw in these project sprints, like writing his first book in a weekend. Think of it like high intensity interval training for your business. You know, instead of jogging along at a steady pace, you got to throw in these sprints every now and again to keep things interesting. And I think we've seen similar ideas from Matt Giovannisi, from uh, Jennifer Maker, where they go all in on one experiment. Like, I'm going to publish a video every single day for 30 days and see what happens, partially to change things up and to re-energize you in the business and partially to shock the algorithms and increase your odds of finding something that hits. If you're bored walking up the hill, try running up it. Never heard that phrase before, but I like it. And takeaway number three for me, I really liked William's ROI calculation for evaluating future projects. Let me play that part again. I want to take on projects that are both going to be fun and profitable in the long term. So to help decide which projects I was going to prioritize, I basically looked at two things. I looked at how much time per week would that project take up? Is it like a half day a week thing? Is it like two days a week? And then also what's the kind of run rate revenue that that project might eventually build towards, say within about 18 months. 
And then I basically divided one by the other. So I came up with monthly recurring revenue per days per week on the project as my kind of ROI metric. Projected monthly revenue divided by the time required to create it. Seems like a pretty good metric to me. And your calculation might be different, but the analytical side of my brain liked the idea of putting an objective number next to all the potential uh, projects on my list, all the things that are on the to-do list. Well, okay, what is this likely to be worth? In any case, big thanks to William for sharing his story. Really cool to see the journey from tutoring to creating content and digital products and earning ad income and getting hired for these high-value coaching jobs, these high-value speaking gigs, and now building out a software tool, continually leveling up, which is something I think we can all aspire to. Notes and links for this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash William. And while you're there, make sure to download your free listener bonus. That's three quick website optimizations you can make today. Your site can be this 24-7 money machine for you, but might just need a little tuning up, and I'll show you how to do it in this file. Again, that's at sidehustlenation.com slash William, or follow the link in the episode description of your podcast app. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked this episode, the greatest compliment is to share it with a friend. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.